Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, and it's... I don't even know the date. I'm doing the show out here on Cape Cod. I can't remember what day it is. I do know, though, it is Thursday, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. How are you this morning? My co-host is here, Lauren Beller, the business coach and president of Big Fish Nation, a 12-month entrepreneurial program, which you can take in the comfort of your own home or office. We've got a great show today, Lauren. How are you? I'm excellent. Thank you, Catherine. I'm yes, looking forward to the show. Well, the show today is all about sex, and so, I mean, who doesn't <laughs> want to hear about sex? I think <laughs> I it's better it. than that. Yeah, and Dr. Pepper Schwartz, she is so cool. I've actually followed her for the past 25, 30 years. And she, this is her new book. She's written many, many books. And uh, she, she, this book is, Prime is the title of the book, Adventures and Advice on Sex, Love, and the Sensual Years. The sensual years meaning after 50. You have that to look forward to. You're getting there, but you haven't quite made it. And I'm hanging on to it. <laughs> but she answers the ultimate questions about dating and mating after age 50. So, you know, join her. Ask questions. She is the uh, the ultimate expert and uh, Dr. Pepper Schwartz how are you this morning I'm just great it's nice to be on your show I'm happy you're having me um, it's great having you on the show and uh, great book really applies to me although I am hanging on to 50 Pepper I mean like really hanging on I have a big birthday coming up this summer but it's really oh, well I've already had mine so oh, I'll just have... let you inhabit it <laughs> oh okay good great well <laughs> all right sex after 50 you know a lot of my, my girlfriends always say you know after 50 it's it's and you were you it, this comes from I guess personal experience obviously married sure. for 20 yeah married for 23 years then divorced on your own single um and sort of not really starting over again it's kind of a process isn't it yeah, well, I think it is, if you're not actually starting over in the sense that you've lived a lot, you know a lot, you have a lot more self-confidence than you used to, uh, but you haven't flirted for a while, you haven't, you know, taken your clothes off with somebody you don't know that well. I mean, you've been in a long-term relationship, and uh, it's quite different. So you kind of have to say, like, you know, what was it like, and who do I want to be this time? I don't want to be the same person I was. I was 25 then. I want to be me and I want to get maybe different things out of this than I did or the same but at least it's a, a period in the book I talk about how to construct a sexual and romantic philosophy to suit the age you are, the time you're in and what your objectives are this time. I mean after all when I started dating again and this story does sort of chronicle some of my own experiences was well if you have advice I'm not looking for the father of my children anymore you know. <laughs> You're looking for fun, excitement, and it's different. I think one of the things that you mentioned in the book that is so true, uh, you talk about having, you know, you make this analogy between a sandwich and a full-course meal. You're not looking for that full-course meal anymore. It's okay to have the sandwich, enjoy it, and, and then go on with it. And Well, I think, you know, I might be looking for both. I mean, that is to say, yes, I would like a partner, and yes, I do fall in love in this book and out of love and in love, but, <laughs> but it's also true to... 
you know, say, you know, sometimes uh, sex is like a sandwich. You don't love the sandwich. You don't hate the sandwich. You just want to eat the sandwich. <laughs> and so, uh, <laughs> you know, that uh, you don't want a five-course meal every time, every night, even in a relationship, you know, if you want to use that analogy. So it's, I think, I think the, the issue being, you know, you can, you can have a wide diversity of experiences depending on what you want and who you are and, and what you're comfortable with. And for me, I was very comfortable with, you know, sex is a sandwich some of the time. And then when I was in relationships, you know, I had a different philosophy. But, but also, but there, Pepper, what you, you mentioned know. in the book, and I think this is real important, you were somebody, you said when you were 15 and you, you know, 15, your hormones are raging and you always viewed sex, you liked sex, you enjoyed sex, you were a sensual person, you, avoid, uh, you know, sex for you as a woman was powerful, not, was being powerful, not, not vulnerable. But mm-hmm. And so that sort of, you would be the kind of person, yes, when you turn 50, I could see you, you know, continuing with that kind of good feelings about yourself, even though the hormones aren't raging. But what about people where that's not the case, or women where it's not the case? You know, they've never felt quite comfortable with their sexuality. And then you turn 50, and let's face it, without hormones, you've got a big challenge ahead of you. Well, first of all, I debate the hormone situation. I don't know if I'm just a freak of nature, but... You know, I still feel pretty driven. Um, so I think there's some women out there like that. I don't think it's necessary just because you've gone through menopause that your hormones aren't there. In fact, I think you can wake them up by, you know, acting as if and getting in those situations and literally turning yourself on. And then I'd say, you know, if you've, if you've never been comfortable with sex, this is a good time to start to be comfortable with sex. Because after all, you know yourself better, you've accomplished more, you like yourself more. It's not like when you're 25 and somebody rejects you and you think you're a piece of garbage. You know you're not. And so in some ways I think dating after 50 is much easier because your whole self is not on the line. And look at, you know, the men you're going to be going out with, their bodies aren't perfect either. You know, they're not always, they're not as secure as, as they might be either. I mean, you don't want to build them up into some kind of super guys. They're not. So I think... The issue is to take baby steps, learn about who you are, go out a little bit, go online. It's safer than most women think. Um, I think there's a lot of good people there. And, 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 and give yourself time to learn who you are at this age. And I think people would be surprised at how, how much romanticism and passion and, and fun they can have. I mean, I wrote this book not to intimidate women but to inspire them and say, come on, You've been given a gift of your body and your heart. Open them up. Use them. We were meant to use them. And the book is inspiring because I think, uh, and I, one of the things that you mentioned in the book, which I think I have tried to do, I have a partner of 20 years, not married, but Mm -hmm. uh, an aging partner. As we, you know, he's older than I. And Mm -hmm. one of the things I think your sexual, as you age, if you become more of a risk taker or more creative about the kinds of things that you do, you don't always have to do the same things that you did in your 20s and 30s and 40s. Be creative about your sexual life, that that really makes a difference. Oh, uh, yeah. People no, get, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I think, don't you think that couples get stuck, like they have to do what they've always done and it doesn't work? It, what You know, you may have sex at 50, you may have sex in the morning rather at night because you're more rested. I mean, that's one example. But there are lots of different kinds of examples like that. Well, I I so agree. I mean, the fact is nobody's out there saying, you broke a rule, you didn't do it right. 
I mean, quite the contrary. What's, what's happening is that you can do it any way you like. You don't have to, it doesn't have to be intercourse. It could be much slower and less goal oriented than it used to be. Um, it, it, there's a lot of ways to be sexual now that, that aren't written by anybody but yourself and your partner. So I think it's really important to, to remember that and to, to enjoy, um, these things any way you like. I mean, a lot of men, for example, have erectile difficulties. Some will want to use a Viagra-like product and others won't. I mean, they'll, they'll want to just fondle or play, et cetera. And I think the idea of, of not, you know, thinking there's only one way to do these things, but to enjoy yourself in a new way is part of the joy of being older and picking, picking who you want to be rather than, you know, being a victim of our culture that tells us we're only good at one size and in one body and all that kind of stuff that we can say we're not going to be afraid of that anymore. Erectile difficulties, though. Men don't want to talk about it. It's a really tough topic. It's like you mentioned two things in the book that that, uh, that we have difficulty talking about. One is erectile dysfunction, and the other is masturbation. You know, we'll talk about sex lives and how we'll talk about a great sexual experience, but when it comes to those two topics, it's very difficult for some reason for men and women to talk about it. Well, it's true, and I have a chapter <laughs> in. Um, in my book about this guy who, um, you know, his penis isn't hard, and I bring it up, and he just like, he was Irish, and he turns even whiter. I mean, he was just like, you know, oh, my God, how could you mention that? And, and I'm thinking to myself, well, could I not? Not because it has to be, you know, rock hard, but because we're being intimate, and we need to deal with it. So um, I think it's important, uh, very important, to 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 talk about these things and 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 deal with them and come to some kind of mutual thing. I mean, you should be intimate enough to talk about. It. As far as masturbation, I love talking about that. Well, let's talk about masturbation. <laughs> I mean, I do because the important thing is that we should touch ourselves and enjoy ourselves, even if we don't have a partner. You know, we're, we're capable of great enjoyment. Um, even though uh, we're alone at the present time, and, and that shouldn't depend on on a specific human being. We should be in control of our own sexuality, and it's a great way to stay in physical and sexual shape when you don't have someone because, in fact, sex is kind of like food. The more you have, the more you want. It's not like you have some and you don't want anymore. Thin people don't like food. Heavy people do because it you know, sort of creates your, your appetite. And that's one reason they, you know, they talk about like shrinking your appetite in the beginning of a diet, so food isn't so important to you, um, because um, because you know less food means you want less food. Well, less sex means you want less sex. So masturbation is one of those ways to remember how enjoyable it is and learn more about your body and learn enough so that you could tell somebody what pleases. What so give yourself permission you. to masturbate, to enjoy yourself and to enjoy your body so that then somebody else will be able to do the same. Yes, I think knowing totally your own right. body. Yeah, it really is important to know your own body. A lot of women, I think, have, no, I don't know, maybe it's changing, but, you know, have the taboos against masturbation, feel uncomfortable. So you um, you have to try it. You have to give yourself, a, I guess, a, a break. Let yourself uh, try new kinds of things. And I want to share, when I was reading your book, I thought, we're on uh, Cape Cod in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Have you been? To, I don't know if you've been to Provincetown, but I, ha- I have. I have actually a while ago, but I have. 
it's a very seductive, sensual place to be. And, oh, absolutely. Yeah, and, and talk about um, sort of uh, doing good things for your sex life. I'll vouch for that. I mean, we <laughs> went to did, did, we do different kinds of things. You know, we're a heterosexual couple. We went to one of these shows with one of our gay friends and saw this strip show. Well, let me tell you, it was very erotic and very different. And, um, you know, doing those kinds of things, kind of pushing the envelope, I guess I would say, it makes a real difference in our relationship. Well, it is, and that's why I often tell people to, um, uh, you know, put themselves in places like scene settings, screen settings that that um, help get them in a sensual mood, that help push them ahead in their in their arousal and their desire for one another. A good stage setting is really important. I mean, that's why we, um, um, in a sense, that that's why we employ stage settings for designers for movies and plays, et cetera, because we need the background to get kind of in the mood to understand it. What would you say and is the biggest problem that that, that um, people come to, that women come to you to talk about in terms of sex after 50? What would you say? Is there a, is there a one problem that seems to be, uh, you know, a theme, um, the, the women over 50 they have the most difficulty with? Well, I think a lot, I think the two things are that they're afraid to use their body. You know, they they they, they feel um, um, embarrassed, and so I have to to give them a sense of um, uh, that it's good that they don't have to have a perfect body to be loved and acceptable to anybody. And um, I think that's important. The other thing that they're that they have to get over is having been vulnerable and being hurt and not wanting to be hurt emotionally. Some people are also worried about safety, but that thing of getting over having been hurt by someone is just tough and, and, and needs some encouragement. So are you talking about women who maybe have gone through a divorce and their husbands left them or that kind of a situation? Yes, you know, or a love affair that didn't work out. Um, I think um, those kinds of things really, really get to people and... Um, I I understand. I understand, and I I know it's hard to go back out there and um, uh, you know really really put your heart on the line again. But yeah, but gotta... what I try and say is that you know you have to be resilient. You have to not take it personally. I have this thing in the book that's my pineapple theory, which is that I don't save want the pineapple theory for when we come back because we are going to take okay. a short break. Dr. Pepper Schwartz Prime Adventures and Advice on Sex love and the sensual years. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. I have three children, and I've been raising my 16-year-old sister. Mary Gallagher and her family shared a two-bedroom apartment with eight people. Now Habitat for Humanity is helping her build a simple, decent, affordable home of her own. When we first found out that we were getting a Habitat home, it was like a dream. I kept saying, don't anybody wake me up. Not only is Mary helping build her own home, she'll buy it. 
with a no-profit, zero-interest mortgage to keep it affordable. Habitat came out and built my home, and when Mary started building her house, I wanted to come out and give a hand. We're not just building Mary's house, we're building a neighborhood. There's several more to be built this year, and I look forward to working on each of their houses and seeing the joy of their face when they open the door to their brighter future. Habitat for Humanity. Building homes, changing lives. Support the work in your community. Visit Habitat.org. I feel very blessed. God has answered all of my prayers. We are home. Are you willing to be taught? And invest a few minutes each week to learn principles that will ensure your success and fulfillment? Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to It's Easier Done Than Said on the Voice America Women's Channel. Chat with Women reaches boomer women and their daughters. The concept is simple. It's the modern equivalent of having coffee with a million or so of our closest girlfriends. Chat with Women doesn't talk trash and it doesn't dish dirt. It's intelligent programming for intelligent women. Imagine that. Host Pam Gray and Rochelle Alhadif, fun-living women with enough life experience to go around, want to share their joy and knowledge of life with others. Plan to spend Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time with Pam and Rochelle on the Voice America Women's Show. If you can't call mom, call Chat with Women. Real advice for real life from real women. And they keep their listeners laughing and learning with exciting interviews, live call-in sessions, and advice from two revolutionary baby boomers. Join Pam and Rochelle every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for Chat with Women here on the Voice America Women's Channel. Radio that talks with you, not at you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to Voice America, voiceamerica.com, women, and joining me this morning is Dr. Pepper Schwartz, one of the nation's leading experts on relationships and sexuality. And we've been discussing her new book, Prime, which answers the ultimate questions about dating and mating after age 50. And also, I don't think I mentioned this earlier, Pepper, but you are also the relationship and sexuality expert for perfectmatch.com. So, Lauren, who is my co-host, I hope you're still there. Any questions for Pepper? You haven't quite reached the over 50 yet. You're still in that 40s arena. So it's a little bit different for you right now. Hello, can you hear me, Catherine? I can hear you. Have you had you in, like, a speaker or something? Oh, speaker mode, something? Who knows? All right. Um, <laughs> no, I haven't, but I'm enjoying the conversation. It sounds like yes. she's talking about empowered sexual women. Empo- yes, exactly. <laughs> It empowers you. Hello. Yes. I, I, you know, I have a lot of background. Is that is that the? I don't know where that's coming from either. Pep, can you hear me? Your ID. Yeah. Yes, I can. I'm just hearing something bad there. Yeah. Like okay. a feedback thing. It's well. Let's. Your this, the book primarily adventures and advice on sex, love, and sensual years is your personal experiences. So let's get into some of that, some of the stories in the book, Pepper, because uh, you've really you know the intimate ones, the not so intimate experiences. Uh, give us some examples of what you talk about in the book. Well, I mean, I tell about my transition, which is 
in the beginning, uh, starting to use online dating because if I didn't, I wouldn't meet anybody. And I, as you mentioned, I was the expert for perfectmatch.com, but it's a different thing to be the expert and another thing to be the customer. <laughs> so, um, I learned a lot about, um, how I would do online dating and, you know, everybody has to fashion for themselves. And if I hadn't done online dating, I wouldn't have, um, met anybody. I think I would have had two dates in five years. And because of it, I had, you know, a Base and a lot of important relationships, and I. Is there I a way to do? Way, I mean, in the book, you talk about a really you. You're very um, professorial about it. You really have a plan in terms of how you give out the information when you send your picture and all those kinds of things for the online dating. Cause, and that's, I think, that's a good point if you talk about that. Because I have a lot of friends who are in that position, but they're afraid to do it. They think it's dangerous. That they really don't understand what online dating is about. Um, yes, I think that I think that really is true. Um, that uh, people need to have some skills for this, uh, and I do talk a lot about it in the book because I think particularly women are nervous about safety, and I, I try and give a lot of safety tips. And I also do, you know, I find out sometimes I violate my own my own uh, guidelines, and I pay for it. You know, like <laughs> oh, this guy sounds so great. I think I'll do something other than the half hour coffee date. I'll really see him. For dinner, he he sounds like terrific, and I almost always regretted that every time I I did that because you really do need to um, um, be with somebody only a little bit to know really if they're worthwhile. I never had anything scary, but I did have some very strange early dates. I had this guy who who every time he saw an animal, he made animal noises. Um, he couldn't help himself, so you know, if he saw a dog, so he barked. Stay with him. I wanted the animal noise man. How a guy? How long? Was well, unfortunately, we were hiking together, so um, you know, we had the whole day. That would have, you know, he was from Alaska, and I couldn't like just tell him I just wanted to see him for coffee. But he's a perfectly okay guy, except you know, listening to someone make animal noises all day is really not my idea of a good time. So, um, you know, I would say I don't care where he's from. You know, do that first date a half an hour and don't do it for more. Um, and there are other kinds of things like that, how to look at profiles, how to be proactive as opposed to wait for men to pick you because I really think women know a hell of a lot more about who they want to be with than, than, than men know how to pick them off of a page. So try and give women permission to be more aggressive in their own behalf. Yeah, so be more um, proactive about it, you know. Exactly, yeah. exactly, how to pick guys and how to write a profile and things like that. And then, you know, I also talk about these relationships I was in. I fell in love several times um, and, you know, what went wrong, what was right. And then at the end of every chapter, I sort of like, well, what did I learn from this and what did you learn about this? Because we all, you know, women are great at sharing. Women are great at at learning from each other. I don't know what men do without <laughs> the same kind of system. You know, I have a group in there I call the Clitorati, which is this women's group I've been in for 30 years. And, you know, they're always a good place to go check back to and get a little reality test on how I'm doing or how they're doing. So um, I think people need to brush off their friendships if they've let them go because they've been married a long time and, you know, haven't given them the, the time they deserve. Um, that happens. Um, and then I think um, what I learned a lot about is that I had to learn how to take rejection and feel like I'm still cool. I mean, I, as I started to say before the break, I developed this pineapple theory of mine, which was that I don't like pineapple, but there's nothing wrong with pineapple. It's a perfectly good fruit. 
So I don't think the pineapple lover should be insulted that I don't like pineapple. It's just a taste. And so that's ultimately where I got to rejection with. You know, Pepper, now that I've gotten older, I think that I take rejection better than I did when I was younger because I have all, you know, I have other resources, I have my children, I have, you know, as you say, a lot of girlfriends, a lot of strong relationships, so if somebody doesn't like me, uh, I just go on to next much more easily than I did, say, in my 20s or even 30s. I completely agree, completely agree, and so I think that that's one of those things that people don't know when they're... When they're first starting to date, they think it's going to be horrible. It's going to be worse. In fact, it's a whole lot better. Yeah, I think it is. Oh, good. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, I I hear those little scratchy things every now and then, and I I think. Go ahead. Well, you talk about there are some things, you know, take yourself out of your comfort level. I think that's really important. And, you know, when you want to meet somebody, when you want to have a relationship, you talk about just, you know, whether you wear a tighter jeans or go to a nude beach or just do something that's a little bit different than what you've been doing. Exactly. I mean, I'm of the also the school. If it isn't working, why would you keep doing it the same way? Yeah. You know, but, you've got and, – and just, you know, I think sometimes if you've been out of it for a long time or if it hasn't been working, think about, well – let me be a little wider in the kind of people I choose, someone of a different religion, someone of a different height, someone of a different age, someone of a different region, somebody who's a talker when I like people who don't talk, someone who doesn't talk when I like people who do, you know? I mean, it's all a growth experience. I often thought of myself on some of these dates as an anthropologist. Okay, I'm just going to find this person interesting, not because I'm looking for the love of my life, but because I'm... I'm going to grow and learn by each unusual person I meet. And, yeah. uh, and your and goals did. are so different because, as you said earlier in the show, Pepper, you're not looking for the father of your children. You're not looking for the person that you're going to settle down with. And it's, So you have the opportunity to be a lot more creative about the people you choose to be with. Oh, it makes such a huge difference. And, and, and I should say, though, that I did meet men who were passionate and who I was as passionate about and as in love with as I've ever been in my life. I didn't feel that it was less. I didn't. I, sometimes I felt like I was 15 again, you know, for how fast my heart was beating. I don't think it's a downhill slope. In many ways, I had the best sex I've ever had at 55 with this guy named Dennis in the book. He was a true artist, and I don't hold every man up to that standard, but it was so good to know what somebody could do to me and what I could learn, even as a sex expert, even at that age. I hope he's listening. <laughs> you know, he, he lives in Minneapolis, and everybody keeps saying, um, yeah, actually, oops, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> Anyhow, I should say, you said uh, it. What, I, what I know, you know, what people always ask me for his, I, the book's only been out about three weeks, but people ask me for his phone number. <laughs> and I said, you know, I don't think he really wants to turn into a service, but he is flattered. <laughs> Well, at least he could give advice. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, oh, he, he, he should write a book. He really did, should. I mean, I he has such an intuitive na- um, understanding of women's sexuality, and, and he has no limits and no rules, and he, he gets into your psyche. And I think one of the most neglected things in sexuality is that internal magma we all own, our fantasy life, our, the, a, a thing where somebody truly understands what our most erotic thoughts are. And that's true intimacy. I think when you get to that, it's a lot more intimate than just body parts. Well, I want to know who, you know, what what did his mother do? I, I, I'm still thinking about him. Because she must have done something really right. To, you said it's intuitive. Like he just lets himself go or feel or he has this, 
when you say intuitive, can a man learn to be a really good sexual partner, or does there have to have that kind of innate feel for it, like this, the, the, like who you mentioned in the book? Well, I think one or the other. Either have this intuitive feel, or somebody has to teach them. You know, a lot of women just don't tell men what they need to know, and so they keep going along their merry way, doing the wrong thing, being ineffective. I mean, it's like having somebody spell wrong and never tell them what the right spelling is. How do they learn? And then they'll go tell their sister, their mother, and their girlfriend about him, but they don't tell him. Exactly. So he's he's clueless, and, you know, he's thinking, okay, I'm doing pretty well, and he doesn't realize he isn't. Um, in in Dennis's case, um, he his mother is a great woman. She was a, yeah, I don't want to describe people too closely because, I don't. I, I do want them to be anonymous, but well, you've but almost he admitted, given out his address. You might as well. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. I won't. No. But he, but uh, he did have a lot of sisters. But I think it's more his nature. He was the kind of person who wanted to know, who was willing to ask, to try, to get feedback, um, experiment, and you know, if it didn't work, it didn't work. We need more dentists. We definitely do, ladies. We have to say goodbye. This has been great, and I want to make sure everyone buys your book because it is a great book. It's fun. It's informative. It's all of those things, and it's very sensual. Prime, Adventures and Advice on Sex, Love, and the Sensual Years, Dr. Pepper Schwartz. Thanks so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. I really enjoyed it, and I appreciate talking about the book. Great, great book. I'm Catherine Zox, and you are listening to VoiceAmericaWomen.com. I'm your social worker with a microphone. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be back in a minute. Radio that informs, entertains, and enlightens you. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. Chat with Women reaches boomer women and their daughters. The concept is simple. It's the modern equivalent of having coffee with a million or so of our closest girlfriends. Chat with Women doesn't talk trash and it doesn't dish dirt. It's intelligent programming for intelligent women. Imagine that. Host Pam Gray and Rochelle Alhadif, fun-loving women with enough life experience to go around, want to share their joy and knowledge of life with others. Plan to spend Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific time with Pam and Rochelle on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you can't call mom, call Chat with Women. Real advice for real life from real women. And they keep their listeners laughing and learning with exciting interviews, live call-in sessions, and advice from two revolutionary baby boomers. Join Pam and Rochelle every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time for Chat with Women here on the Voice America Women's Channel. Inner Health Through Homeopathy, hosted by Melissa Birch, CCH, with Dr. Tim Stryker. This show features a weekly discussion about homeopathy, a holistic approach to health care which treats ailments by bringing the entire body into balance. Homeopathy encompasses and examines the makeup of the entire person instead of focusing solely on a disease or ailment. The healing process involves physical, mental, and emotional changes which come from a wellness within. Homeopathic remedies go far beyond an alleviation of symptoms. They can restore harmony to the body and open paths to a higher level of awareness. Each week, Melissa Birch, CCH, explores a different health issue and individual healing processes with Tim Stryker, MD. 
Tune in every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for inner health through homeopathy. Finally, radio that has real depth. Voice America Radio Network. listening to the Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you would like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox. Welcome back to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm your social worker with the microphone on Voice America, voiceamerica.com women, with my co-host Lauren Beller. Joining us this morning is Peggy Collins, author of Help is Not a Four-Letter Word, Why Doing It All is Doing You In. And boy, there are a lot of people out there who can identify with that, including myself. Peggy has coined the term self-sufficiency syndrome, so we have to find out what that is. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on, Peggy. Thank you so much, Catherine. It's wonderful to be here. I think you've really hit on something here with this self-sufficiency syndrome, especially with women. I know this applies obviously not just to women, to men, to all of us, but I kind of like to focus on women in this whole self-sufficiency syndrome. So tell us about the book. What are we going to learn from the book? What are some of the questions that you answer in the book? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, pick one, all right? Well, let me just How about identifying the signs and the symptoms of the self-sufficiency syndrome? How do we know we have it? I think that's a great question. Okay. Uh, let me do this for your listeners. I'll give you five statements, Catherine, and they could rate those on a scale of one to five, one being they're never like this, to five, they're always like this. And by the way, they don't have to answer every single question on the high end in order to feel that they are a self Sufficient, and that's what I'm calling the person who has self-sufficiency syndrome. So the first one would be they can't ask for help. Second, uh, they do everything, of course, because of that, all by themselves. The third one is a biggie. They can't delegate because no one else can do it as well as they can. And the fourth is a need to be in control. And the last is they help other people all the time. They're even known for that. They just can't ask to have the favor returned. Now, if there are people out there listening who are ones and twos, Catherine, then they need to call in and help us get to balance because they are extremely well balanced. Threes are right on the borderline, so they have to be very careful. But anybody listening who had at least three of those statements, a four or five, then let's start tweaking the behavior and moving toward balance. And this applies also, Peggy, whether or not, let's say you're a stay-at-home mom and you're trying to do all of it at home, or you're in business, or you're doing both. Uh, so all of this applies in each, either either one of those arenas, I would you're, say. You're absolutely right. As a matter of fact, uh, several of the uh, workshops I've done and programs that I've done radio interviews on have been for super moms because that is a huge issue. I think it's an enormous issue, and I think that's, as you talk about in the book, I mean, mothers who will not allow themselves to to get help, to take time out, to even get a babysitter, and they find themselves stressed out, and eventually it can lead to depression and lots of other kinds of things if you don't get a grip on it in 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 the beginning. Really, and I think that young mothers, uh, like all young people, uh, feel somewhat invincible. 
I know when I was younger I felt that way, you know, like, gosh, no, nothing's going to do me in. But the truth of the matter is that uh, that young mother or anyone younger who's feeling that way may indeed already be having some symptoms that they have not attributed to the stress that this is putting on their bodies. So somebody's walking around uh, having digestive problems or a back problem or uh, certainly neck problems is very common or maybe headaches, uh, they need to start looking at that and perhaps tracing it to what you and I are talking about. Don't you think, Peggy, that our society, though, even our own families maybe unknowingly uh, contribute to making us, let's say, as mothers, um, young mothers, uh, to feel guilty if we don't do it all? There's something like, well, that you're a failure, that you're not a good mother, that you can't take care of your family if you need to help or you have to ask for help? Oh, Catherine, I think you've really hit upon it. Uh, as a matter of fact, you that's ironic. I've been typing in there an article for someone, and I was doing a synopsis, and I, I just got through typing that because I call those people in the uh, – I have categories in the book, and those are the inheritors. Uh, a lot of us in this society inherited this uh, cultural value that says asking for help is a weakness. And, of course, that's one of the things I'm trying to do, and I just thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to talk about this and spread the word because we've got to make a personal choice to change this culture uh, to asking is a strength to ask for help mm-hmm. because it is, isn't it? It is a strength to ask for help, and I think also especially the way we're set up today we we you know young women are raising family raising children nuclear families isolated uh, away from their own family so they don't have the availability of mothers or sisters or aunts and mm-hmm. they really do need to establish a, a a group of of support and be able to ask for help and also to be able to say no i think that's part of uh our, Part of a part of I guess it's a societal problem, but it kind of ties into that. Women afraid to say no, always saying yes, and 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 not being able to set boundaries. It does because you know the bigger issue there is uh, this super mom. I guess it's a syndrome of its own where these women are buying into uh, a couple of things. One, we're a very competitive society. And so if television programs uh, and advertising tells us that if some is good, then more is better, then these super moms are actually competing against one another to keep up. And uh, it's just a prescription for serious problems. You talk about, Peggy, also learn who and who not to ask for help, but who will we not talk to us about that? Because... Who would be inappropriate? Who would be the inappropriate person or persons to ask for help? Catherine, uh, those of us who've never really gotten to know ourselves, and you know this, in the book, I help readers go through that process of getting to know themselves. Because if you scored a four or a five on those statements that I uh, gave you, then you got this... um, honor maybe of being all on your own and doing this out of default you know when I say that in workshops some of the members get angry because they said well golly who else could I trust but myself and it took me years to learn because I was indeed a self-sufficient for some 35 years and so I'm talking about something that I know intimately and one of the first things that occurred to me when I started having panic attacks and that's what brought this to a head with me to decide to change my life, was I had been defeated by my own body. I couldn't even trust my own body. 
So if it's true what I'm saying, that a self-sufficient really doesn't have a good trust of themselves, then how can we trust that we will pick somebody who will help us? In those cases, most of the time, we'll pick somebody very subconsciously who won't help us just to confirm what we believe, and that is that we can't trust people. So in other words, that's that's an interesting point. So you have to know yourself. I mean, it takes, and you've had that experience. You were that way for 32 years. This was something that you, to you finally just, it sounds like you just kind of went into total overload. and, and, and Oh, uh, you know, the story that I like to relate because it's such a fabulous analogy is uh, when you put a frog into boiling water, it has sense enough to jump out. But you put a frog into cold water and you start raising the temperature and gradually, gradually that frog boils. And I lived right at that boiling point all the time. I call that a state of emergency because um, we were gradually adding to this, Catherine, so we really can't identify. It's come on so gradually like that boiling pot that we can't really identify what's happening to us and we adjust our expectations get greater for ourselves each time. And so it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I didn't see that because I was adjusting to each level of more stuff that I was taking on. So I was an executive in Dallas, Texas. I, I've moved from there three years ago. But uh, I was doing very well in my career. I had two children um, that I adored to this day, of course, and I had really made a pact with myself that I would never miss a school event, and I didn't. Uh, my husband wanted some attention from time to time, and I had two elderly parents who needed some health care, and I appointed myself their health care manager. So, I'm exhausted listening to you. <laughs> oh, I, I'm exhausted thinking about it, that because... I was so proud. I can remember this day, and that's been years ago, how proud I was that I could do all of that. I thought that was just the greatest thing since life's bread, that I could juggle all those things. And it was almost a contest, never to have to ask for help. Uh, but as I say that, I hope you and your listeners can hear how extreme that is, uh, how reactive that is. That is a reaction to life. That's not living life. Peggy, were your and like your husband for it? Was he encouraging you to do that? You know, he like you're so wonderful, you're so capable, you can do it. So it kind of like it's a you know kind of promotes that kind of of behavior. Oh, and I, I think you're absolutely right because he he was all those things you described. Uh, he was very proud of me because I had accomplished all those things. Of course, he had his own career, you know, that he was um, going after as well. So um, that, I think, distanced him a little bit from what I was actually experiencing. So at what point, you, suddenly you wake up one morning and you are having an anxiety attack or a panic attack, which is even more serious, and what did you do? I was sitting in my office, actually. I'll never forget it as long as I live. I, uh, it was February the 2nd, Groundhog Day, and I was sitting in my office in Dallas on the fourth floor uh, just feeling like I had the world by the tail. And all of a sudden, it felt like the walls were closing in on me. And that was a benchmark. That was, uh, as the writer of the book Tipping Point calls it, I think that's a perfect way to describe it. That was the tipping point of my life. 
because I made my way to the ladies' restroom. I'm not sure how. I don't know. But I do remember leaning my head against a marble wall, and the coldness of that wall brought me back. And, of course, immediately I thought I was having a heart attack. And then as I realized there was no pain, I groped myself together and met friends for lunch. And Catherine, I sat there at that table and told them the whole thing, and their mouths dropped open because I had always looked like a person who had it all together, looked like I didn't need anything or anybody, and they could not believe what I was saying that I was sharing this with them. And one of my friends at the table said, Peggy, it sounds like you've had a panic attack. And my doctor proved that right. And the rest is history, and the book is the result. Yeah, and it's a wonderful book and really helpful to, well, to uh, millions of people, men and women, as we said in the beginning of the show. But how do you get to the point, and we've, we've obviously been talking about this, but so that you don't end up like you did, you know, after with the panic attack or anxiety attack. So you're not the frog who gradually adjusts to the to the warm water, you know, because it is insidious, and that's really, I think, the point you were making. It just, mm-hmm. it's, it's an insidious process. How can we not allow it to happen to us from the beginning? We're going to take a short break. I hear the music, 44 minutes past the hour. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. about what you care about. News, relationships, health, finances. Voice America, Women's Radio Network. If you are among the millions who are on the quest to find the fountain of youth, then this is the program for you. Dr. Norm Shealy brings to Internet Talk Radio Youthful Aging, Secret of the Fountain, every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 12 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Dr. Shealy's mission is to help you have optimal health and longevity, and the purpose of youthful aging is to give you an opportunity to ask your own questions about anything related to health, and everything is related to health. Each week, Dr. Shealy will focus on a particular health topic and welcome your questions, which are the reason for the program. Tune in every Monday at 9 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, 12 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for Youthful Aging, Secret of the Fountain with Dr. Norm Shealy. And discover for yourself the secret of the fountain. Are you willing to be taught and invest a few minutes each week to learn principles that will ensure your success and fulfillment? Tune in every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Standard Time to It's Easier Done Than Said on the Voice America Women's Channel. Winning with Wellness, where beauty meets health, with Dr. Vidushi Babber, is a place where women can share their health and beauty tips and learn that wellness means having a positive self-image. Tune in every Wednesday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. We talk with you, not at you. We're Voice America, Women's Radio Network, the new face of talk radio. 
listening to The Catherine Zox Show on the Voice America Women's Channel. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. I'm Catherine Zox, VoiceAmerica.com Women. I am your social worker with the microphone. And we've been talking to Peggy Collins, author of Help is Not a Four-Letter Word, Why Doing It All is Doing You In. And she certainly has had that personal experience she sees it from a professional as well as a personal point of view but before we took the break peggy i said and we have been you know we've been talking about it throughout the show but there are real specific strategies that you talk about in the book or that you write about in the book to prevent this from happening to you or to really you know get to the point where you have a really serious problem you know so you have to be able to identify the signs and the symptoms of the self-sufficiency syndrome and then do something about it. So uh, some of the very specific kinds of strategies, and there are things that one can do. Oh, there are. And I think um, what we're doing is the first step, and that is making people aware that this exists. Uh, This is just another way to look at one's behavior. I think women evaluate whether they tend to be somewhat perfectionistic or workaholic. Uh, I think self-sufficiency often are both of those. But it's yet another language, Catherine, to uh, talk about a situation. So we're making people aware of that. And the thing is, if you can recognize it, then you can do something about it. And so, so you have to first identify the problem absolutely. and have the language to be able to identify the problem. Yes, yes. And uh, it's kind of like I, I had someone write me the other day who walked into their psychologist's office who'd been treating them and said, I now know what I am, you know, to the point you and I are making. I'm a self-sufficient. And the psychologist said, what does that mean? And she described it. And she said, you mean you can't even ask somebody to drive you to the airport? She could not believe it, but it just opened up that whole dialogue that they could then have. That example is interesting because I have the same problem. <laughs> well, and I, I did too. Yeah, I mean, I would pay a taxi. I don't want to be dependent on anybody, so I would get a taxi. I would, I would, I would not ever ask anybody to drive me to the airport. It's funny. That's that's a that's a good example. Well, and that's one she used. You know, let's take that for a second and and talk about um, what's happening. First of all, um, if you ask somebody, you're letting go of some of the control. And that's one of the major statements I mentioned earlier. We self-sufficients want to totally be in control because this whole process is being driven by fear. And so if listeners can get a handle on what fear is driving this behavior, what would happen if they ask for help? Uh, Would they look less than? Would they look like they hadn't lived up to their responsibility, which I think is the reaction a lot of women have. They start feeling guilty. You know, you mentioned that earlier uh, because they feel like they haven't done what they're supposed to do. Um, If you come out of this and and if you have children and a family, if you come out of this uh, with a better relationship with your family uh, and perhaps with your husband, then isn't it worth it? Uh, maybe having to go through that feeling less than and feeling guilty until you can learn to balance that. I think there's a real payoff there, don't you? I do. I think one of the issues with me in that example that we're talking, the taxi cab example, mm-hmm. uh, is uh, that I'm giving up my independence. Then I have to, you know, I'm saying to somebody, I'm dependent upon you, and um, and I think that's. For me, that would be one of the issues, that I'm not the independent person. I can go it alone, do it alone. Right, and, and but when you never can depend on someone else, then you can 
realized that that is not balance. Uh, and what I've learned, and it took me a long time in working through this book, it finally um, hit me. You know, this is a very therapeutic sort of thing to work through. I never realized how accomplishment-based I was. Uh, those of us who are self-sufficient may argue till the cows come home that we're relationship-based, but we're really accomplishment-based. Uh, it's what gets done that's important to us and how it gets done. And so to be independent and to be able to do everything all by yourself, it's like my, one of my best friends said to me, when are you going to give me the dignity of helping you? And that really brought me up short, Catherine. And I think what it does, you know, in carrying that further with whether it's a friend or it's a partner or a husband or a spouse, it keeps you away from really having an intimate behavior, an intimate relationship with somebody. It does. It, yeah. It, it, it really, it, it may be a fear of intimacy as I'm listening to you. Um, well, I think, I think that certainly goes into it too. There, it's definitely, as I said, the syndrome is definitely fear-based. And so for people to figure out, you know, I took, I did some surveys while I was doing the book and I was amazed at some of the really fairly superficial, uh, practical fears some people had, like, I don't want to ask anybody else because I don't want them to see the mess I made. Or I don't want to ask anybody else because then they'll take the credit. So, you know, those are not... Or if you ask somebody else, there may be a fear that they're going to ask you and you don't want to be involved in that kind of a relationship. And that was one of the fears, too, absolutely, that now I'm going to owe somebody. But let me throw this out for you. Uh, because you are the social worker. If if I owe somebody, uh, then I have to give up some of my accomplishments to make room for reaching out and helping somebody. I help people anyway, but now I'm letting somebody else dictate to me what it is I need to help them with. Do you hear the loss of control there? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's the reason I think that people fear owing someone else. Uh, but yeah, I think loss of control is the main issue. Absolutely. Yes, but then you don't, it's not your choice, then it becomes somebody else's choice in that fear that you, you're just not going to be in control of your life or your situation or your choices. And you bring up just the introduction of one of the biggest ahas I had in writing this book. And I do want your listeners to know that there are three chapters of solutions. Many, many, many solutions. There's an entire chapter on just evaluation exercises. So, But this is one of the things that was huge for me. I realized, came to realize, like a light bulb going on over my head, that there's a difference between controlling your life and being in charge of your life. Self-sufficiency use what I call white-knuckled control. Uh, we are controlling out of fear. But when you're able, over time, to sit down and process and figure out what it is you can control, and by the way, I have a wonderful model that someone else designed in the book that that is about checking on that. You figure out what you can control and what you can't, and you and I both know, Catherine, that most of the time the can't part is people, other people. You can't control them. Yeah, it's a false sense of feeling that you can control, whether it's your family, spouse, children. Uh, exactly. And, and, yeah. Well, when we, when we realize what we can't control and then we can process that and let go of that for the very first time in our entire lives, we will be in charge. Yeah. In charge versus in control. Yes. And if you look them up in the dictionary, it's virtually the same, but it's really not. There's a very subtle difference. 
you know, what I realized that was huge for me is that in giving advice, you know, I got up every morning during that self-sufficiency syndrome time, I got up like a orchestra leader leading an orchestra. I was going to tell everybody what to do. If they just listened to me, their lives would be wonderful. And the day that I realized that I was writing the script for their adventure, I was not allowing them to have their own. And when I let go and could stand back, and I have to tell you, I had a huge hole in my tongue as a result. Still healing. But if I could just bite my tongue and not say anything, this is even people close to me, and know that they can work it out on their own, it will be different from the way I would work it out, but it is the best for them, then they have had their own adventure. Well, I think you said it, and that's a wonderful thought to wrap the show up with because I want to make sure that because we only have about a minute left that okay. uh, that listeners and readers uh, can go to do you have a website they can go to I know you can go to Amazon.com and read about the book and buy the book it's a fabulous book help is not a four letter word why doing it all is doing you in website and then we'll say goodbye and it is help is not a four letter word four spelled out dot com great great having you on the show this morning oh I Peggy. loved it Catherine thank yeah. you so did I. Thanks so much. Peggy Collins, uh, and it is. It's a great book. Help is not a four-letter word. Why doing it all is doing you in. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone on voiceamericawomen.com. Have a great day. We'll see you next week. Hope you've enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Women's Channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversation with Catherine Zox.